June is National Indigenous History Month, but June 2020 has been an ignominious month for Indigenous people and their interactions with police. Chief Alan Adam, Chantel Moore, Rodney Levi. These are just three names in the last month whose interactions with police have been violent and at times deadly. I'm Dave McIver. And I'm Adam Toy. And this is Why. The videos and reports that have surfaced from across the country over the past few days are disturbing, and they bring to light the systemic realities facing far too many Canadians. Later today, I'll be speaking with Cabinet and to the RCMP Commissioner. We need to ensure that each of these individual cases is investigated properly, but we also need a larger reflection on changing the systems that do not do right by too many Indigenous people and racialized Canadians. The plight, modern and historical, of Indigenous peoples in Canada have come into the spotlight as rallies in support of Black Lives Matter and anti-racism movements have swept the country coast to coast. One example of that was a planned solidarity march in early June at Siksika Nation in southern Alberta. But an exposure to the novel coronavirus put that march on hold. I reached Siksika Chief Ore Crowfoot to ask why it was important for his community to host that solidarity march. Um, well... One of the previous counselors, and um, his name is uh, Francis Butch Wolfleg. He was actually the organizer of this event. It was um, it was not chief and council organized. It was um, nation members that had organized it. But they had uh, let us know as chief and council, and we were supporting supporting their um, their movement. So, um, so it wasn't. I just want to clarify: this march was not organized by. Chief and Council, it was organized by some members that um, that wanted to um, protest and kind of in light to the uh, Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, we wanted to show solidarity to that movement as well as, as, uh, as bring attention to the, I don't want to say Native Lives Matter, but, you know, just to show the police brutality and um, systemic racism that you know, in Canada as well. I mean, you know, and uh, and like I said before, uh, you know, there's a lot of good RCMP, uh, so we don't want to um, paint everybody with one brush. But at the same time, there is, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. It's hard to uh, just like in the states, you know, like the amount of of um, you know our percentage numbers in in, in Canada as a as a whole. The native population is approximately 4% of the population of Canada. Yet, if you look at all the statistics, such as missing and murdered, um, incarceration, um, poverty, unemployment, we make up a substantially higher number than the 4%. Uh, you know, one, one number I was told that is the, the jail north of Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, is 75% native. So, you know, that, that 75% is not the population of that area of Native, yet the police, the prison system is um, 75% Native. And so there's a lot of stories that we hear, a lot of stuff that goes reported, a lot of stuff that goes unreported. And if a lot of times if you're not from that community, if you're not Native or in the States, the, the Black Lives situation, 
if you're not from those areas, a lot of times you don't see. You don't see that racism. You don't see uh, the police um, singling certain groups out. But if you're part of that group, you know. And, you know, like, you know, you're known, you're taught, you know, you know almost don't trust the police. And, and we want to. We want to correct that, you know. Like, like I said, we've been working with a local RCMP in Gleeson, and they were actually going to be part of this march. And um, and so, you know, we wanted to bring that. That was one of the uh, the big issues that we wanted to one stand in solidarity with our brothers from the south, uh, the big one. I mean, uh, South Vietnam. Our, our, our black brothers from the south, as well as um, as as, as uh, you know, the movement for the light of the of, of the police brutality amongst Native people here in Canada. Athabasca Chippewan Chief Alan Adam was arrested with force by RCMP during what police said was a check on an expired license plate. Chantel Moore was shot and killed by an Edmonston police officer in her apartment during a wellness check. Rodney Levi was shot and killed by New Brunswick RCMP following a barbecue at his pastor's home. Let's continue our series on racism in Canada and look at the group that has faced five centuries of racism on this continent, Indigenous people. Rai Moran is the director of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, located at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Welcome, Rai. Thanks for having me on. Rai, I'm wondering if you can um, get us caught up on a bit of, uh, we'll say, modern history. Uh, since the Truth and Reconciliation Commission completed its work and forwarded its reports and recommendations to the federal government, what has happened beyond establishing that national center that you're the, now the director of? It's a great question, and, and it's actually the question that we probably get asked most frequently by Canadians across the country. Where are we at on the implementation of the 94 calls to action? You know, generally speaking, we are seeing some really good efforts on certain categories of the calls to action. We're seeing modest efforts on others, and we're seeing very little action on others. So what are those ones? Generally speaking, we're doing pretty well across the board on education initiatives. At the K-12 level, uh, within post-secondary systems, uh, within uh, professional segments of the population, be it lawyers, doctors, uh, journalists even, we're, we're doing okay there. We've still got a long road to, to travel, but there's been a fairly significant response made by Canadians saying, okay, I didn't know about this history, we need to do better. Um, the middle ground on some of the legislative pieces is a bit more mixed. So we've seen some major developments in the province of BC, for example, where they actually introduced uh, legislation that will support the realization of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The federal government, so too, was really close to imp- implementing that kind of legislation in the last sitting. Couldn't quite get it passed before the government fell, but I understand that they're continuing to work on things. We've seen the passage of the Indigenous Languages Act, uh, Child Welfare Act, um, in regards to Indigenous peoples. So we're seeing some of the legislative shifts, which are positive. On the accountability side, though, I'd say we're the weakest. So we have not seen the development of some of the primary accountability mechanisms, the data, the statistics, the evidence 
that we really need collectively as a country to, to tell us whether or not the gaps that exist between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples are widening, remaining the same, or uh, more concerningly, worsening. What about a topic that's being discussed with all of the Black Lives Matter rallies across North America? Policing. Our colleague Jane Gerster had a piece from last year explaining how the RCMP was established to police Indigenous groups. Where is police addressed in the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and where are those calls at right now? So, depending on how you come at the the question, um, there's a variety of calls to action that address the questions of justice uh, and policing. Uh, so one call to action was the call for uh, the establishment of the Missing Emerged Indigenous Women and Girls Inquiry. And of course, what that inquiry looked at and specifically examined was the profound lack of justice experienced by Indigenous women and girls for decades in this country. So their calls for justice uh, call for many substantive and systemic reforms to policing and to um, how we uh, function in the society, um, which are extremely important and can't be lost sight of and absolutely need to be part of this conversation. Uh, There's other calls to action. For example, Call to Action 57 calls upon mandatory training for all public servants uh, across the country. And... Police are absolutely public servants, um, and they are called upon directly to uh, better understand the history, context, uh, legacy of colonization, understand residential schools, uh, really delve deeply into anti-racism and uh, conflict resolution strategies. You know, and as public servants, they have a responsibility, and I think there have been some efforts made, but I think there's still a long road to travel on that one. And I think the police uh, forces, uh, it, even right today, are really being challenged on how much work they've done to understand how systemic racism and unconscious bias operates in the, in the police systems. And, of course, downstream we see, you know, still the very alarming rates of incarceration uh, of Indigenous peoples. We see numbers that are continuing to worsen, really. And we haven't seen uh, the full transparency and the full, uh, again, um, legislative reforms and or production of reports and other information that really help Canadians understand just what the, uh, uh, the roots are to um, uh, why incarceration rates are so high and then really strong and substantive um, nationwide uh, efforts to... Um, you know, lower the numbers of Indigenous peoples being incarcerated. Yeah, and incarceration is just one part of those interactions between Indigenous peoples and police forces. And that ties right into some of the other calls to action, like when we think about, you know, uh, law, crime, punishment, uh, you know, this, this very complex overall justice system. We see that as a country, we're starting to step into a, a more fully realized uh, legal framework that actually can accommodate and address many of the um, profound um, challenges faced by Indigenous peoples and also the failures of our system to properly address those challenges. So the TRC has called for um, Indigenous legal systems and traditions to be honoured and to be further developed. And we're starting to see uh, universities like the University of Victoria establish, uh, you know, a a joint Indigenous law program wherein people are actually graduating with a degree in Indigenous law that is actually going to add another layer of law to this country 
that in many cases is going to be much better suited to dealing with a whole range of legal challenges uh, faced uh, by Indigenous people. Now we can't talk about systemic racism against Indigenous peoples in Canada without talking about residential schools. Rai, there's much painful history about the residential school system that we should all educate ourselves on. And in the settlement agreement, some 40,000 survivors got remuneration. But that was just a small proportion of those lives who suffered through residential schools. But to summarize, residential schools were designed and implemented to strip the Indigenous identity from these children such that they could be better citizens in a white society. Yeah, exactly. They were they were. They were their primary goal and intent was to convert, to Christianize, and to turn those indigenous kids into quote-unquote white kids, and in so doing, even turn those kids into agents of their own, like of their parents' assimilation and their, their, their grandparents' assimilation and their community's own assimilation. Yeah. The effort used in those residential schools was literally oftentimes to turn the kids against the parents, to break that fundamental bond between parent and child, and to teach, you know, air quotes, teach the the child that everything that their parents knew, everything that they had taught them, everything that their grandparents knew was wrong and had to be left in the past and was heathenistic and, uh, you know, even at times devil worship. uh, So... A very, very, um, very, uh, very horrific system, and one that you know, especially was especially horrific because remember that all of this was inflicted upon children at ages as young as three, four, five, six, seven years old, you know, right through till um, you know their their twenties. Sometimes kids were brought into these schools at that young age and never left the school at all. Were literally kept there. 12 months of the year for 13 or 14 years and never returned home once. Their only, the only family that they knew, quote-unquote, um, was within the confines of that uh, very harmful system that operated within the walls of the residential school. So residential schools are, are one way that um, on an individual level, uh, indigenous peoples were were persecuted is is maybe a, a, an oversimplification, but uh, it seems to me that that if you look back at the history of legislation uh, involved uh, involving uh, or enacted on on indigenous peoples, if it's the Royal po- Proclamation of 1763, uh, or even uh, you know perhaps better known the Indian Act, um, I was leafing through Thomas King's The Inconvenient Indian, which isn't really a, a history textbook, but it it tells it in a very oral history sort of manner. Um, the history of the of, of the Indian Act and its amendments is striking. Um, in uh, as 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 late as 1985, an amendment uh, allowing Native women who had lost their legal Indian status. I'm quoting um, uh, Mr. King here: uh, lost their legal Indian uh, standing through marriage. They they were able to regain that their status. So they lost status through marriage. They were finally able to regain that in '85. In 1968. 
you know, indigenous people could be enfranchised, meaning the, the government could take their status away from them. Uh, 1930 Amendment, uh, banning indigenous people from playing pool if they did it too often. Uh, in 1927 Amendment, made it a crime to solicit funds for indigenous claims without a special license from the government. 1914 Amendment, uh, I mean, it goes on and on and on, basically to the, to the, to the, uh, to, to where it started in 1876, where this legislation started. I'm wondering if you can speak to how uh, a piece of legislation like the Indian Act has basically, uh, what, what kind of influence it has had on a nation, uh, on, a, on a continent's worth of, of, indi- of indigenous people who aren't all the same. They all, they, they all have their own unique identities depending on where they are in, the, in this country. Well, we have to always remember that, you know, Canada's primary goal from the outset of the idea of Canada was to gain control over the land and next the incredible natural resources um, that have existed in, in across the country. So there was this massive uh, quest and hunger and, uh, for uh, the land, and that land would be uh, gained through any means possible, basically. And that uh, quest was reinforced by some very shady notions, uh, you know, notions that, you know, the TRC refers to, these, these ideas that uh, of terra nullius, you know, new land or empty land, right? That, that there wasn't really anybody here. There wasn't any, any nations that we really had to deal with. Uh, the doctrine of discovery, this idea that we still talk about, that, you know, this land was discovered rather than stolen or taken, which is much more accurate. And then, you know, as Canada began to establish itself in, you know, the 1860s, then you saw it take a little bit of time, uh, you know, about a decade, and then really begin to roll out a a series of sweeping reforms to the country. Um, Indian Act being one of them. Uh, Indian Act being the primary... um, legal means by which Canada really began to uh, encircle uh, or entrap Indigenous peoples and remove and erode Indigenous peoples' right to self-determination and ability to self-determine. You see the creation of the reserve system. You see, uh, you know, the government's approach to treaty making, which from the government's perspective was all about land secession and occupation. Uh, you see in 1885, you know, the government resorting to armed uh, means uh, to suppress the Northwest um, resistance. Uh, that's the first time the Gatling gun, for example, was ever used in Canada. That's where, you know, many Métis people and First Nations people uh, were shot and killed out in Saskatchewan. Uh, that's where Louis Riel ultimately was hung as a result of that. Uh, you know, following that, you just see Canada just imposing more and more and more legislation and more control into uh, and over the the lives of indigenous peoples and you know I having had the the great fortune to have you know traveled with the commission and you know listening to really you know talented speakers like Senator Murray Sinclair and others I mean Senator Sinclair talks about you know the the brutality of the Indian Act and he, and he says you know what what would you have done 
had somebody come to your door, what would we do today if somebody came to your door and knocked on the door and removed your kids? And we, we put ourselves into the shoes of, you know, the many, many families that had their children ripped away. So, you know, the first thing that you would do is you would probably try to resist, you know, and you'd probably say, hey, don't take my kids. You know, those are my kids. Um, why are you taking them? Well, the Indian Act provided a mechanism wherein the parents, if they resisted, could either be jailed or fined, and that was a very serious threat, and people were jailed and were fined for uh, resisting having their kids uh, taken. Um, then, once the kids are removed, you say, well, maybe I'll go down to the, to the school and at least I'll visit them. Well, school officials ensured that no parents could come onto the property, and sitting in behind that, you know, many First Nations people in particular were, were forced onto reserve, and Indian agents wouldn't allow people to leave the reserve without a pass. And, you know, if you were going and traveling to the residential school, it's not certain that a pass would be granted. And I've heard many accounts of people having been stuck out for whatever reason and not being able to return to the reserve on time and ended up being incarcerated for years because their pass had expired. They returned 24 hours late or 48 hours late and literally being thrown in jail for that. So you can't go visit your kid. Okay, so then what do you do if your, your kid's been well, maybe we'll have a meeting and we'll talk about this. Well, guess what the government does? Prevents meetings or assemblies of three or more persons. You know, that's, it's deemed unlawful for three or more persons to get together in the Indian Act or the Indian agent or the RCMP could uh, break that up. Okay, so we can't meet. Well, we're going to hire a lawyer. We can't hire a lawyer uh, because lawyers are prevented and prohibited from representing status First Nations people. Okay, well, we're going to go and vote and vote these um, people out that are making these terrible decisions. Ah, guess what? No right to vote until the 1960s, right? Um, well, if all of this is happening and, you know, we just have to suffer through this and live through this, at least we have our ceremonies, at least we have our culture that we can go back to. Ah, but we don't. The sun dances are banned. The sweat lodges are banned. Singing our songs is banned. Um, you know, the potlatch out west, which is the traditional governance system, is banned. You know? And this is just one element of, of what is happening. Every, every time you go out and you, you step foot and you go into a city, you're met with brutal, overt, ugly racism. You know? Um, back in the home community, you, you know, you're on oftentimes terrible land or land that is not um, prime land. You're, you're prevented from leaving there. You're prevented from having an economy. All of these things have combined together to create just this terrible situation that we find ourselves in, and this is the great fundamental profound injustice that exists at the heart of Canada. Canada has done all of this knowingly, and Canada has manufactured this crisis that we find ourselves in, and that's where Canada and Canadians have a huge responsibility to rectify this, to understand this, and to do the hard work now that's necessary in order to ensure, you know, this is all fixed, you know, because Canada created this. The retelling that you just shared there, it's a deliberate, systematic um, subordination of Indigenous peoples. Or, put another way, this is a systemic form of racism. Genocide is the actual term. You know, that, that we have to remember that the Commission took its work extremely seriously. And we traveled the country. We talked to 
7,000 people, you know, we, were, we recorded just shy of 7,000 statements. We collected millions of records from government and church archives. We worked with the top scholars in the country and beyond. You know, beyond the 7,000 statements, we, we talked to thousands and thousands and thousands of more people. We sat with elders. We talked about this. We spent the time and thought really hard about this. And at the end of all of that, we were left but no other conclusion to call this cultural genocide, which is, you know, is genocide. Because the goal and intent of all of this has been to eliminate indigenous peoples as indigenous peoples from this country. That's what the primary goal is. And that's what we have to come to terms with as Canada. We have to recognize that the status quo in this country has been and continues to be, very arguably, the suppression and elimination of indigenous people's inherent right to be indigenous. And that's what has to change. And that's what we have to sit with. And that's what we have to really ensure that we come to terms with, that we are in fact a genocidal state. And that puts us in direct relationship with a lot of really shady characters out there. But that's who we are. That's who we are. And that's where history being told from the perspective of indigenous peoples is so critical to understanding all of this. So let's say one day in the near future, all of Canada, its institutions, its people, top to bottom, coast to coast to coast, enact all of these calls to action. Is that the work you mentioned that has to be done? Is that all we have to do to fix the system as it is built now and as it's been built through history? When we look at the 94 calls to action, uh, we have to remember that many of those calls to action are... um, previous calls to action that have been made by Indigenous peoples, either in other major national efforts of healing, such as the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, which was one of our first major efforts as a country to um, repair the relationship. And that Royal Commission, of course, came out of the Oka crisis, which terrified the country uh, in many ways and, and forced the country to say, my God, what is going on here? Like, how can we have armed conflict involving the military and indigenous peoples in our, in our country right now? So there was over 400 um, recommendations that were made in the Royal Commission, and the, and, and the Truth and Reconciliation pulled many of those forward. But before that, there was also many, many calls for justice, many, many calls for action that had preceded that as well, and there's been many in the intervening term. So why I share that is because To answer your question, yes. June 21st is National Indigenous Peoples Day, but with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, celebrations in 2020 have changed. Many of them have gone virtual, like the social distance powwow. If you're more of a reader, I like to suggest The Inconvenient Indian by Thomas King. And I just found out about a subscription service for Indigenous literature called Raven Reads, a response to the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. This Is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email, thisiswhy at globalnews.ca, and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and would like to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon.